Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, A Vision for Christmas, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Isaiah's Light in a Dark World. So let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21 to 9, verse 7. We're looking at Isaiah's Christmas, and we have noticed that Isaiah's days were dark days. For one, to the most part, the people of Judah had forgotten their God, and instead, they had begun a love affair with idols. And second, we'd also notice that Isaiah's day was a day of great political upheaval. The two nations to the north, Israel and Syria, were seeking to defeat Judah and end the rule of David's descendants on the throne of Jerusalem. And if they had succeeded, they would have ended the promise of the Messiah coming from the throne of David. But behind all the local problems was a great regional problem. The mighty and cruel Assyrian Empire was on the rise, and they were literally gobbling up one nation after another and forcing whole people groups into exile, effectively ending historic civilizations. But as we've also seen, the king of Judah, Ahaz, was a very wicked man, wanted nothing to do with God. Rather than trusting in the Lord for salvation, he had formed an alliance with the empire of Assyria. Isaiah knew that Judah would suffer much because of this, and so Judah had rejected the Lord, and in effect, they'd made a deal with the devil. So you can't help but read Isaiah and get a very, very dark feeling. Yeah, in the end of the day, God would send a Messiah, but in the present day, the mood was dark. It was getting increasingly dark. The sun was setting, and for the moment, it felt like despair. And as we ended Isaiah chapter 8, in the last two verses, Isaiah gives us a basic summation of God's word to a sinful nation. Chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. See, Isaiah foresees a very dark immediate future. People who have rejected God will curse the God they have rejected, and when they look around them, distress and darkness. You know, there are moments in the history of this earth when entire civilizations, you know, they're filled with incredible hope and optimism. It seems as if the sun is rising, and that does happen. And then there are other times when the sun sets over a civilization. Crazy things about those sunset moments are a great many people don't pay any attention at all until the sun actually sets. It surprises them. They thought the daylight would last forever. But in Isaiah, these are not simply the natural cycles of human civilization. All things are governed by the great God who sits on his glorious, eternal, and all-powerful throne. And Judah had sinned against the only hope they might have had. And now the sun was about to set, and it was going to get very, very dark indeed. We now come to Isaiah chapter 9, which, as many of you know, is one of the great Christmas passages from the First Testament. This section really does highlight Isaiah's Christmas vision. So we begin with Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
Now, in order to understand what we've just read, there are a couple of things you'll need to notice. There are times when speaking about the future, when Isaiah will use the past tense. And there are reasons for that. See, Isaiah wants to give the impression that when God speaks about the future, it's like when we speak about the past. A past event is done. It can't be altered. It's fixed. But when we, that is, we humans, speak about the future, well, we think of a possible future and we hope that it might happen. Not so for God. He can speak about the future in the same fixed and secure fashion as when we speak about the past. When God says something is going to happen, well, that's like reading yesterday's news. It's now done. It's certain. It's fixed. And so when Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, he actually means those walking in darkness will one day see a great light. It's very important in our understanding of this passage. Okay, let's follow Isaiah's train of thought. First, he says that for those who are now in gloom, the day is going to come when the gloom will end. Now, let's stop and ask, who is Isaiah speaking about? Who are the people who are in gloom right now? And he answers it. In the former time, he means in the near future, God is going to bring the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali into contempt. So what's the prophet referring to? Notice that this land is also called the land of the way of the sea. We note that a road had been developed that in the future, well, it would be called in Latin when the Romans ruled via Maris, the way of the sea. This was the road that passed by the Sea of Galilee. It served as a trade route in which goods were brought from the Middle East all the way down to Egypt and also out through the Mediterranean Sea. So you might remember that that Matthew tells us, you know, in the book of Matthew, that he himself used to have his tax collection booth right on that road outside the town of Capernaum when Jesus came to him and said, follow me. And of course, you'll remember that Matthew left everything that he had. The money was left lying on the table and he followed Jesus. Now then, Isaiah also calls this land Galilee of the nations. Well, it was. You remember that Israel, that is, Israel of the north, after the promised land was was divided into two, Israel had formed into an alliance with Syria in order to fight off the coming advance of the empire of Assyria, which was, of course, the world's superpower of the day. But the alliance wasn't going to stop the Assyrians. Eventually, in 722 BC, the Assyrians would swoop down on Israel and utterly destroy them and forcibly remove the entire population. And so this land, once belonging to the promised people of God, now became Galilee of the nations. And by the time of the New Testament, Galilee had become a place populated both by the Jewish people, along with a great many Gentile villages as well. And the Romans governed over the whole land. It was truly Galilee of the nations. But then said Isaiah, in that land, which only knew darkness and invasion and crushed dreams and the eclipse of hope, in that very land, at an important time in the future, a great light would shine. Not just a light, a great light, an overwhelmingly brilliant and powerful light. See, I want you to listen as Matthew describes the ministry of Jesus. And here, I'm reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, says Matthew. When Jesus came by my tax booth, and when he made his base of operations in the village of Capernaum, and when he began to announce the kingdom of heaven, and when he drove out demons, and when he healed the sick, and when he raised the dead, and when he commanded nature itself, and it obeyed his voice, at that moment, says Matthew, this is the very thing that Isaiah prophesied. Yeah, it happened. This is the very thing that this dark land had been awaiting. A brilliant and overwhelming light pierced through centuries of darkness that was the history of this land. Indeed, that's what Isaiah believed would happen in the place of gloom, in the land that awaited an Assyrian invasion in which all hope was about to be extinguished, yet a light would shine. Let's go forward now to verse 3. Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You know, when Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nations, the you he's speaking about, of course, is God. God will, when the great light shines, multiply the nations. That is, the nation of God's chosen people will be many times larger than it presently was. We're reminded of Revelation 7, where John speaks of a great number, a number so great that no one could number from every tribe and all the people and nation and every tongue. Suddenly, Isaiah's remnant, while it becomes far greater and mightier than anyone could have imagined. And the joy that will come in that day, well, says Isaiah, it will be like the joy of getting the harvest in at harvest time or the great and mighty shout when one army defeats another and then pounces on their spoil. This is a shout of triumph. This is the realization that the night has gone and the day has broken. And that's the thing Isaiah saw. Yep, these days were dark days, but God had given him a vision of a great light that will drive the darkness away. The Messiah is coming, says Isaiah. Wait for him. Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has scheduled our next Israel experience for April of 2021? Back by popular demand, we're returning to the Holy Land. This time, we'll be joined by Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. Your days will be filled visiting incredible biblical locations such as King David's City, the Jordan River, and an exclusive sailing on the Sea of Galilee that includes a time of Bible teaching and worship. Every detail is worked out to maximize the most memorable Israel experience you could imagine. All of the details can be found by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. We will also be offering an optional Jordan extension for those interested. So head over to our website and secure your spot today. You'll notice that as we read through Isaiah 9, 4 to 7, that Isaiah will use the word for or because three times. It's like Isaiah wants to describe for us why the joy of the dawning light will be so joyous. He wants to tell us that it's impossible to overestimate the great outpouring of joy that is going to come. 
Now, please also notice that with each use of the word for, we will find that our joy is actually increasing. So let's start with the first four, which is found in verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So please remember that Isaiah uses the past tense to speak of a future event. One day, he says, God will break the yoke of burden. A yoke was put on animals and they would pull a plow. That was a burden. The staff and the rod, well, that was what was used to beat that poor animal so that it would continue to bear the yoke, to pull the burden, not stop. But God will break the yoke. He's also going to break the rod of oppression. Indeed, says Isaiah, it's going to be like the day when Gideon, with his army of 300, overthrew the hordes of the Midianite oppressors of Israel during the time of the judges. Isaiah is saying there is a great liberator that's coming. He is greater than Gideon, who, even though he looks small, is going to bring the greatest liberation in history. So that's the first four. Oppression is ending. That's a great reason to be joyful. Now, the second reason to be joyful, that's found in verse 5. Four, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled up in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, did you notice? They're going to be burning every single one of the boots of those men who are a part of the invading army. The army of the invaders, says Isaiah, will not only be defeated so that their oppression is ended, they'll be utterly defeated. They won't be able to rise again. And then we were to ask, how can one battle, one defeat of the enemy, be so decisive that from that day on, no oppressor will ever be able to rise against us? And what Isaiah is describing must be so much more than an overwhelming victory. He's describing the great and final and ultimate victory when all evil will be finally and ultimately vanquished. Well, how can such a thing come to be? We go on now to the final reason for our joy in the last of Isaiah's three uses of the word for. I'm reading here Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the passage we've all heard read every Christmas, but we've not understood it, perhaps. Here's what Isaiah said. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wow, where do we start? Well, we might begin by noticing that Isaiah is again speaking about a child. Remember back in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah there said that in the future, God would give a very great sign so that we might know that God is with us. The sign would be that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Well, now he says that the child has been born. And then he describes first his authority, and then second his identity, and then third his future. Let's take it one at a time. First his authority. The government shall be on his shoulder. See, the idea of a government laid on the shoulders, well, that's an ancient idea. It's the idea that a ruler maintains the burden of governing. You know, it's work, and it requires in the hands of a good leader that, that he takes upon himself the task of the welfare of the kingdom. We notice that when Jesus came, he proclaimed a kingdom, sure enough. And at least in the early stages, his kingdom was a very different one than the world had ever seen. His was the ultimate kingdom that, that routed all of the effects of a fallen world. See, up until then, no one had ever seen a king drive out demons, heal the sick, 
I mean, ultimately, his kingdom would mean that he would purchase the forgiveness of sins and the eternal future of all who hoped in him. It's clearly the most unusual kingdom in history, for it provides what no other ruler has ever been able to provide for his people. The authority of this king is a government that frees the citizens of his kingdom from the effects of the ruin of Adam's fall. Well, next says Isaiah. Note the identity of this child. And Isaiah gives us the coming Messiah, his four distinct titles. The first, Wonderful Counselor. Now, in our day, we tend to think of a counselor in terms of a, you know, a psychologist or a therapist, and that's not the intent here. A counselor in biblical terms is one who gives counsel or one who imparts wisdom. But the wisdom he imparts, says Isaiah, is wonderful. That is, it, it's going to invoke astonishment. We're reminded of how when Jesus spoke, many said, we have never heard anyone speak the way this man did. Indeed, to this very day, Jesus Christ is unquestioningly the greatest teacher in human history. The world has never in times past, nor until the present day, ever heard such wisdom. It's astonishing. Next, Isaiah says something that must have also astonished the Jewish mind. This child is the mighty God. And of course, that's all that Isaiah says. Now, we might ask, how is that even possible that the mighty God would be a child that is born among us? And of course, it will be John, the apostle of Jesus, who will ultimately explain that mystery to us. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is incarnation. God the Son, who has always been God, has at Christmas stepped into the human race and clothed himself in human flesh. See, it turns out that when Isaiah said that, that his name would be called Emmanuel, he actually meant it literally. Not just did it mean that God's presence would be symbolized among us, it would mean quite literally that God would live among us. The concept is no different from the First Testament tabernacle. God commanded a tabernacle to be built so that he would live among the Israelites. But now, in Jesus, the tabernacle is constructed of human flesh. God says Isaiah will literally live among us. Then the third title for the child to be born, Everlasting Father. You know, to many of us, that's a confusing title. You know, we've been taught, if we've been taught well at all, that we are never to confuse the person of the Father with the person of the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Even while we believe that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in essence, we also boldly proclaim that they are distinct in person. Now, I think we would be helped by reading the words of Isaiah rather than everlasting Father as Father of eternity. That is, the Son that is to be born rules eternity. He is the originator, the creator of eternity. He is, as we learn from Revelation chapter 1, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He commands time, and in him rest all the ages. Eternity is his domain. Then the fourth title of the child. His name will be Prince of Peace. That's wonderful news. Remember the context of Isaiah? It's the rising clouds of war. Everything is trembling. But, says Isaiah, eventually, this one will put an end to all wars. And so why is the birth of the Messiah such joyous news? Well, because, says Isaiah, his authority is unmatched and his identity is this, God himself has come to live among us. Finally, says Isaiah, 
you should also realize that with his coming, a new future now descends upon us. In the past, we saw darkness and great gloom, war clouds, death, people turning to evil in order to survive, the loss of hope. Horrible burdens were laid on people more than they could bear. That's the gloom that Isaiah saw. But, says Isaiah, when the sun is born, something new will occur. Of the increase of his government and of peace, he says, there will be no end. Notice that Isaiah says that his government will increase. That, that surely means that in its infancy, the government of the Messiah will not govern all the earth. Isaiah sees that the government of the child will need to grow to reach its full effect. Indeed, when we come to the New Testament, that's exactly what we see. First, we see the government of Jesus in his earthly ministry in ancient Israel. Next, we see him dying for the sins of all who put their trust in him, securing our eternal salvation. Thirdly, we see the program of global evangelization until the glad message of Jesus is preached to all nations on the earth. And then we see him returning and establishing a millennial rule. Finally, he creates the new heaven and the new earth. See, Isaiah said, his rule will increase. And then he adds, nothing's going to stop this. It is forevermore. This will never end. And that is Isaiah's Christmas. There may be gloom today, but the future of God's Messiah is unstoppable. Be filled with joy. John, it's Christmas Eve, so I've got to ask you that question. You know, with everything else going around in the season, what's Christmas Eve to you? What do you do on Christmas Eve? Well, uh, you know, our kids are gone now, and uh, Christmas Eve has always been a time, though, that we go to church. I mean, it's a time to worship, and and uh, I don't know. I think many people will agree with this. I love a Christmas Eve service that's traditional, uh, that's filled with prayers and readings of Scripture and promises of hope, and that's really an issue for me. Uh, also, uh, you know, it is a time for family. Uh, it's a time to get together and celebrate that God has given his great son. And when our kids were little, and now that we have grandkids, we also make sure that some of the children, and sometimes all of them, will be called upon to read the entire Christmas story. Um, and so that's also a part of it, reminding ourselves of Christ coming into the world. That's a little bit of what we do. Thanks so much, John. And, and Merry Christmas to all you from Back to the Bible Canada. And remember, join us again tomorrow as we continue our series of Vision for Christmas right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This Christmas, join with us for a renewed vision for the season a renewed passion to stand shoulder to shoulder in advancing the clear message of the gospel story. For us, a child is born. While December is the time of year that sets the tone for the new year of ministry ahead, your gifts ensure the gospel message is heard across the nation. So whether you're a long-standing partner in ministry or you've recently been impacted by any of the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada, could we ask you to stand with us this month in our effort to raise $465,000 by December 31st? Your gift, among other committed ministry partners across Canada, will sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry into 2020. Please consider sending your gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.